Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. While you're doing that, I will apologize. I did not know how this morning was going to go. I do not have nearly enough jokes planned for this sermon to fit in with the way everything else has happened here so far. So, yeah, I, you know, uh, Tim, I, did, I didn't get the memo. I was out of town. Um, we're in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you were here last week or you watched it, we looked at just one verse, verse 13, which is Peter's thesis statement. This is what he's going to talk about all the rest of the book. He says, you need to set your hope on the return of Christ. And we talked about that word hope, that in, in our language, hope is something that you aren't sure of. I hope it rains, meaning I don't know if it's going to rain or not. You, you hope, meaning you desire something, but you're not sure. But in the language of the Bible, the language that they're writing in, hope means you desire something that you know is going to come. It doesn't mean you wish. It means you expect but, but you don't know when, or you don't know where, you don't know how. You, you have a desire for something that you know is going to happen. And so you hope, but it's not here yet. And Peter says, we set our hope. Remember I told you one of the commentators I read defined hope as a confident expectation of good. Where do you have a confident expectation of good? And as Christians, we have that in the return of Christ. There are things in our world that are not going to be fixed until Jesus returns. When I, I, I'm a troubleshooter by nature. I'm a problem solver. That's what I did for 20 years in the IT world. And when I became a pastor, I kept attempting to solve problems. I kept attempting to troubleshoot, find out what the problem is, and fix it. And Brian Marvel, the other pastor here who preached last month, at one point had to sit down with me and say, Jeff, um, everything in the pastorate is not a problem to be solved. Many things are just tensions to be managed because the reality is that there are things in me and there are things in you and there are things in the world that are not going to be fixed until Jesus returns. Now, there are many things that are. There are many things that will be. There's lots of times God in his grace does fix and change things, but there is no promise of that. Elizabeth and I have been married over 30 years and as any of you who've been married that long know, at some point you come to realize there are things about your spouse that are not going to change. There's things in me that I desperately wish I could change. And my wife desperately wishes I could change. <laughs> and if I try really hard and I put a lot of energy and effort into it, I can change those things. But then I move the energy somewhere else in my life and I, it, I just slip back. I just go back into being the person that I was. There's things in our lives and things in the world that are not going to change until Jesus returns. They are not problems we can solve. They're tensions we can manage. But Peter says they will one day be dealt with. When Jesus returns, he sets everything right. Not some things, not most things. Everything is set right. Peter said that's where your hope needs to be, your confident expectation of good. When will all of this be dealt with? When Jesus returns. In God's grace, some of it may get dealt with here. And I told you, if you're sick, we will pray for God to heal you. And many times he does in his graciousness. And sometimes he doesn't. But he will. You will be healed one day when Jesus returns. 
everything is set right. That, this is Peter's thesis statement for the whole rest of the book. Remember, we're in a time, early 60s AD, when the government, these guys all live under the Roman Empire, the government has started to see Christians as a threat, and they've started targeting Christians. Christians are starting to be persecuted simply for being Christians. And so you get, you, if you, you know the stories, Christians in Colosseums, Christians being coated in pitch and tied to poles and set on fire during dinner parties to, to be the lighting during the party. This is when Christians start to be targeted in places in the world by the Roman government. And Peter is not going to say to these people, hey! it'll all be over in a couple days. Don't worry about it. Sure, Nero's the emperor, but he'll be gone soon. Somebody else will come in. And He's going to encourage them to endure. He's going to encourage them, as we've said over and over again, to stand fast. Not to attack, but not to retreat. To stand fast. This is his thesis statement. Our hope has got to be that Jesus will set all these things right when he returns. Not that I know I can set it right. And I think I told you last week, I think we all know people who have left the church. They're angry with God because they had an expectation that God would set something right now, that he would heal something, that he would fix something, that he would make something happen now in their lifetime that God had not promised to do. He will one day, but not now. And from here on out in the rest of the book, it is Peter telling the Christians, and these are Christians in uh, basically modern-day Turkey, some different Roman provinces out there. Okay, so how are we going to live? If this is what it means for us, we know that Jesus will set everything right, but it is not right now. How do we live while it's not right? How do we live while we're being persecuted? How do we live when people are coming after us? So read along with me. I'm going to pick back up at 13. We'll read it again, but I'm going to go through to chapter 2, verse 3. So we're going to read from chapter 1, verse 13, down through chapter to verse 3 of chapter 2, where Peter begins to talk about, okay, what does this mean? How do we live? What does this look like? Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed this is coming, at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and your hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For... All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
So Peter's going to start out very generally. He's not going to start giving them specifics about their situation. First, he's going to talk to them generally. He's going to call them, in verse 14, obedient children. Now, I like that because he could have said obedient servants because that's true too. We are God's servants. I appreciate that the relationship that the Bible uses to describe God to his people most often is as a father to children. That's how God wants to be remembered to his people. He is a master. He is an employer. He is all these other things, and the scriptures will use those images as well. But father to children is the dominant image in scripture of how God relates to people as obedient children. You know, being a child gets you some great things. It gets you the the parental involvement. It gets you the relationship. Yeah, it also gets you some not so great things in our world, like being obedient. Somebody else gets to call the shots when you're a kid. You don't get to decide. Your parents do. Your guardian does. Who's ever in charge. Peter says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. We have an old way of life. We have a way that we used to live. I would say selfishness. We used to be committed to ourselves. What is best for me? What do I need to do to get what I want? We had an old way of living, Peter says, of selfishness. Now, he says, just as he has called you as holy, so be holy in all you do. For it's written, be holy because I am holy. Okay, this is not on the test, but this is fun, so you need to know this. When he talks about not being conformed to the way you used to live in ignorance, what he actually says is the way you used to roll in ignorance. Because the expression, that's how I roll, is from this language, the language of the Bible. It's over 2,000 years old. Uh, that's how, when, just like what we say, that's how I roll, meaning that's how I live, that's, my, that's the things that I do. That, that's a an expression from the language of the Bible. Peter says, you used to roll this way. You don't have to roll that way anymore. You should roll differently, he says. Now, he says we need to be holy. Do you remember what he said in the introduction? I mean, I know, that's like months ago for us, right? But for them, it's three minutes ago. They're just reading. This is being read to people like I read you the passage. Remember what he said at the very beginning in verse two, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sanctifying is the same word in their language. It's holy. In their, they would say the holifying work of the Spirit. We say sanctifying, same word, to be sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And I told you, that's not something we do today, but they knew exactly what that meant. You sprinkle blood on something to make it holy, to make it fit for the God. You take an ordinary plate and you sacrifice something and you sprinkle blood on it. Now it's a plate that you can use in a feast for the God. Peter's already told us we're holy. Peter told us we've been made holy, we're sprinkled past tense. He told us the Spirit's at work, the present tense sanctifying work of the Spirit. You've been made holy, you are holy, and now Peter says, so be holy. And he's gonna do that pattern over and over again through this passage. He's gonna say, you need to do this, because I told you up until now, up until last week, there'd been no commands in this passage. He's just told them things about themselves. Now here, this passage is full of command. Every paragraph, hey, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. But listen over and over again how he ties it into something that God's already done. Listen as we go through this. He says here, be holy, why? You already are holy. 
He told us that at the beginning. Be holy because God is holy. He's not saying, hey, you need to go out there and be holy. This is not some new standard. Okay, you're saved. Now you need to be holy. Because if you're not holy, there's going to be consequences. If you're not holy, something's going to happen. This is not some new standard that gets put out there. Okay, you're a Christian. Now here's what you have to do. Peter is saying, this has already happened. You are holy. The blood of Christ made you holy. The Spirit's at work in you to make you holy. The God you serve is holy. Now you need to live that out. This is true of you. Now live it. Now do it. Because we all know there's things in life that we know how to do. We're perfectly capable of doing them. Sometimes we just don't want to. We're tired. We're hungry. We're hangry. Whatever it is, we just don't want to do them. Peter roots our obedience. As obedient children, he says, here's these things you need to do. He roots that over and over again in what God has already done. God is holy and God's made you holy. So now do that, be that, live that out. Notice he's going to do it again in verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. That's a command. You need to do that. Okay, verse 18, because, now what's he going to say next? Somebody tells you, you've got to do this because, I expect some sort of justification or maybe even a threat. You need to do this because it's got to be done and I pick you. You need to do this because if you don't, this bad thing is going to happen. You need to do this because it's time to do this and here's how it works. What does Peter say? You need to do this. You need to live in reverent fear. For you know, because you know something. Not something's going to happen. You know something already happened. It wasn't with perishable things like silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from our ancestors. By the way, empty way of life is literally empty rolling. The empty rolling of our ancestors, redeemed. It means to be ransomed. It means to be bought back. Okay, anybody here ever been kidnapped and held for ransom? No? I met a guy at one of our pastor lunches, and he and I had both worked in West Africa, where unfortunately this thing happens. And so we asked the question that people who worked in that part of the world always ask each other. So you ever get kidnapped? Right? Three times he'd been kidnapped and held for ransom. He worked for a big multinational, three times. And it's over in hours. Right? They kidnap you, they send the demand, somebody comes, there's a negotiation, they pay it, you're out. That's a reality in their world. People are kidnapped. People are held captive. Whole communities are taken captive. If you want to get into all of the Roman economies and things like that, slavery, being a slave trader is big business in this part of the world at this time. Lots of people in their world got taken captive. And the way you get out of it is someone pays for you. You are bought back. That's what the word redeemed literally means. You are ransomed. You are bought back. Peter says, hey, you ought to live in reverent fear. You know your life is going to be judged. You ought to live in fear. You you ought to have, as he said before, this holy life. Why? Because you're going to get in trouble if you don't? No. No, because you know you've already been redeemed. You know you were a captive 
and you're not a captive anymore. And what was the cost? What was the price to be paid for you? So you've heard of Julius Caesar, right? First emperor of Rome. When he was 25, he was taking a boat trip from his home in Rome to Greece, and he was captured by pirates. And when the pirates realized he was a son, you know, he's not Caesar at this point, he's just some nobleman's son. When they realized how rich he was, they, rans- they, they, they sent a ransom demand to his family. 25, ta- uh, 25 talents of silver. Now, a talent's 70 pounds. No, sorry, 20 talents of silver, right? That's 1,400 pounds of silver. Julius Caesar was incensed that they thought so little of him. He insisted that they demand 50 talents of silver. Don't you know who I am? Right? They're totally freaked out. They've never had a captive before bargain upwards on his price, right? 1,400 pounds of silver? You think that's all I'm worth? 3,500 pounds of silver, right? That's what I'm worth. Because the ransom that they demand, that's how much you're worth. What are people willing to pay to get you back? That's what you're worth. What was Jesus willing to pay to get you back? His very life, everything he had. He died gruesomely. I mean, getting crucified, go read about what happens to you in crucifixion. That's a bad way to go. That's a really bad way to go. He died to ransom you. You were held captive and he paid his own blood, his own life to get you back. Again, do you see what Peter's doing? Why? Why should you live in reverent fear? Because something's going to happen to you if you don't? No, because something already happened to you in the past. Because Jesus bought you back. Why do we obey? Why do we live well? I mean, you've heard me say this a dozen times, and Peter says it here half a dozen times. We do not obey God to get him to love us. We don't obey God so that he will save us. He does love us. He's already saved us. We obey in response to what God has done for us. God is not holding that out somewhere. Okay, if you will obey, then you will get, then I will ransom you. You're a captive, you don't want to be a captive, great. Do all these things and then I'll pay for you. He already paid, Peter says. He says, we know that. Remember that. Remember that Jesus laid down his life for you. And then in response, live out your life in holy fear. Live out your life knowing that you want God to be proud of you. Listen, he'll do it again. Look at verse 22. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. This may be my favorite one. Now that you have, you have purified yourself, past tense, done, finished, you are pure, and you have sincere love, present tense, you've got it right now, you have it. What should you do in the future? You should love. Now that you have love, you should love. Again, not holding out something out there. Like, hey, okay, you need to do this. You've already got this, Peter says. You are pure. You have love for people in you. God has given that to you. Now do it. This word love, you've probably heard this before if you've hung out at church, it's the word agape. It's not an emotion. It's not a love meaning you like someone. 
It's not a love meaning you're interested in someone. It's not an emotional reaction. It's a volitional reaction. It's love meaning devotion. Choose to be concerned about other people, Paul says. Why? Because God was concerned about you. Because God was already concerned about you. You're already purified. You already have love. God's given you this. Now live it out. Now do it. And you've heard me say this before again, love deeply from the heart. The heart in their world is not emotions. That's your gut. We say, oh, my heart breaks for them. They say, oh, my stomach hurts for them. Like literally, that's what they say. When, when you read, we talk today, you heard them, one of they talked about this at the, during the singing, right? All the times Jesus looked out at people and had compassion. What it literally says is he looked at the crowd and he had a stomach ache because that's where they feel things in their world. Your head is where you think, your gut is where you feel, and your heart mediates those two. Your heart is where you're thinking and your feeling come together. It's you, it's where you make choices, it's your will. When you're told to do something from the heart in scripture, it means your will. Choose this, choose, Peter says, to love deeply, because you already have love because you've already got it, because you're already pure, because you're already holy, because you're already ransomed. All those things have already happened, Peter says. They're all in the past. Now that you have love, choose to use it. Choose to express it. Choose to do the things that God is calling you to do. And he does it again here in the very last one. These Two little verses, or three little verses in chapter three. Again, a bunch of commands. Rid yourself of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Like newborn babe, crave pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation. Right, those are commands. Do this now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. You know God is good. So you know the things he tells you to do are good. You know that he's concerned about you. You know he's done all these things in your past for you. How do we respond? We love each other. I mean, I think, you notice all these things are kind of like things we do with each other, right? I don't have malice for the table or just malice in thin air. I I have malice towards someone. I, I deceive a person. Hypocrisy, envy, slander. These are how we relate to each other. I think he's giving us some examples. Okay, what does it look like to love each other? Well, don't do this stuff. But again, he roots it in what's all already happened. You already know God is good. It's not, if you do these things, then God will give you a taste of goodness. You've already tasted God's goodness. You know he's good. You know what he's done for you. Now live that out. Live out what you already know to be true. This is why you'll read things in scripture that say, hey, if you don't have works, you don't have faith. If you're not at work, if things aren't happening in you, you don't have faith. They are not saying, if you don't have works, you won't get faith. If that's what they meant, that's what they'd say. (laughs) If you don't do this, you won't get faith in the future. They're saying, if you have faith, if all this has happened to you, if God has made you holy, if God has called you, if God has redeemed you, he's bought you back, if God has purified you, if all of these things are true, then stuff's going to happen in your life. Do you remember this summer? Tim did a couple sermons, and he interviewed people. And he did one, and he interviewed the Shaws. 
Bill and Suzanne Shaw. And Bill said, well, I said I was a Christian. I thought I was a Christian, but I wasn't. How? How did he know he wasn't a Christian? Because of his life. Because of what he was doing. Then he said, I became a Christian. And do you remember? Tim asked his wife, Suzanne, how did you know he was a Christian? Right, he said he was a Christian before, and he wasn't. Now he says he's a Christian. How did you know he was? Do you remember what her answer was? He changed. He started changing. If you have faith, the writers of Scripture say over and over again, wow, you're going to change. Because <laughs> they don't call Jesus the hound of heaven for nothing. He is going to come after you. And I tell it, when I talk to people about, about Christianity and the faith, and people ask me questions like, well, do I have to stop doing this to become a Christian? No, heavens no. Do I have to stop sleeping with my boyfriend? Do I have to stop cheating? Do I have to stop doing this? Do I have to stop doing that? Do you have to stop to become a Christian? No, you don't. Wow. If you become a Christian, oh, he's not going to be okay with that. Like full disclosure, he is not going to leave you alone with those things. He is going to come after you. When there are things in your life that are bad for you, that displease him, he is going to hound you about them. He's going to hound you until you either tell him, leave me alone, or you obey. No, you don't have to change anything to become a Christian. You just have to accept it. That's why the writers of Scripture will say, wow, if you have faith, if these things have happened to you, if God has done all that, because why do you have faith? Verse 21, through him, Jesus, you believe in God. I don't have faith because I figured this out and I'm so smart. I don't have faith because I'm so lucky to have been born in this country to parents who believe. I have faith because of Jesus. That's what Peter's told us several times before. You have faith because Jesus has given you faith. You're holy because Jesus has made you holy. You are ransomed because Jesus ransomed you. You are pure because Jesus made you pure. All that's already happened. Now, live it out. If you have faith, you will change. You will see works. Things will happen in your life. The same reason water runs downhill because gravity pulls it down. If you go up on the top of that street up here and you dump out a big bucket of water, it will run down the hill. Every time it rains, the gutters on this street are just full because it starts at the top and it just runs down. That's what water does. It runs downhill. If you dump out a big thing of water and you see a big puddle there, I can tell you with 100% certainty, you are not on a hill. If you were on a hill, the water would be running down the hill. That's what gravity does to water. If you have faith, you will have works because water runs downhill. Because if Jesus is at work in you, he will change you. You're not going to change yourself. It's not some standard, again, that we're, we're like trying desperately to get a hold of. So, oh, maybe he'll do these things for us. He's already done them, Peter says. Peter roots every single command he gives to them here in something that has already happened to them. Yes, you have to obey. Right? That is this tension in the Christian life. You absolutely, positively must obey. But it's not you. It's him in you. 
So my daughter and I have a joke. She has a credit card, has her name on it, right? But it's tied to my account. So we will go out to lunch somewhere, right? And the bill will come and I'll be like, don't give it to me, give it to her. She's paying. She's taking dad out to lunch, right? And she'll take it and she'll get it to hand her card to the guy and the guy will come back and she'll sign it and she'll give it back to them and we'll leave who bought the meal to every outside observance Christina did. You can go look it up. It's her credit card with her number and her signature. You can go look at the security camera footage of the restaurant. I never touched that bill, right? I refused to touch that bill. I made him give it to her, right? She took it. She paid for it. But where did the power come? How was she able to buy that meal? Where'd the money come from? in the back where you can't see it, when a transaction happened somewhere between banks, that was me. I paid for that meal. But it's her card with her name, and she can do whatever she wants with it, and she signs it. Peter's saying that's us. God's given you Everything you need to do this, be holy. How? Because the holy God has already made you holy and his spirit is at work in you, making you holy right now. So be holy. Live your lives well. Live in reverent fear of God, always striving to obey. How? Because you're not a captive anymore. Jesus has redeemed you by his own blood. You are free. Do you get that? You are free to obey. Paul will go like chapters of this in Romans. You used to be enslaved. And even if you wanted to do what was right, you couldn't. Now you're free. You have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. You are free, so go. You can imagine, what would happen if the way, I'd like the waiter, you know, I think it's your turn to buy lunch, Christina, right? And the guy turns to her. What happens if she's like, How do I do that? I don't know how to do that. I can't do that. I don't even have a regular job. I don't have a bank account. How am I going to pay for this meal? But that's what we do. We're faced with obedience and we freak out. God has given us what we need to obey him. Be holy because you're already holy. Live well because you're already free. Do all these things you've been called to do. Why? Because the junk in your life, God's purified you. We don't have to obey. We get to obey. We've been freed to obey. You've got the credit card, brother and sisters. When God says, obey me and do this, he has equipped you and given you what you need. That's another part of scripture. God never calls you to do something without equipping you to do it. I don't turn to my daughter and say, pay this. When she has no way of doing that, I get her a credit card in her name tied to my account. And I turn to her and I say, pay this. And she says, sure, dad. Sometimes we'll be standing in line. This would be like, let me. Yes, amen. Praise.
praise God. Yes, my daughter is buying me lunch. Like, I love that. God loves that. When you obey, because he has equipped you to obey, made you able to obey, given you what you need to obey, all that in the past, he loves it when you obey. He loves it when you obey. Brothers and sisters, you have what you need. I mean, these are serious. Again, we're going to get more and more specific as we go along. But this is hardcore. Be holy. Live your life as re- in reverent fear. Love everyone. Okay, look around this room. You got to love all these people, right? You got to love me, who's already like three minutes over time, and I'm not done yet. Like, this is, how? How could you possibly do this? Because you know what he has done for you. He has already given you what you need because water flows downhill. You have what you need to obey. If you look at your life right now and you don't see changes and you don't see God's spirit at work and you can't point to things where you're like, oh yeah, Jesus is after me on this, then you need to ask yourself if you're a follower of Christ because coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. And being born in a predominantly Christian country doesn't make you a Christian. And going to Sunday school doesn't make you a Christian. And giving money to the church doesn't make you a Christian. Although I will say, I appreciate that. Thank you. I don't want to like dissuade anyone from that. But that doesn't make you a believer. It makes you a donor. It doesn't make you a Christian. You are a Christian if you say to God, I believe. Jesus, I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. Please be Lord of my life. Wow, he will say yes to that every single time. That's all you have to do. That is what it means to be a follower of Christ, to say to Jesus, I believe. Please be Lord of my life. And he will be. Oh, he will. (laughs) He will change you. He will give you what you need. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for God's spirit to remind us of these things. Remember what Peter said at the very beginning, before he ever started any of this, with minds that are fully alert. I told you literally that's gird the loins of your intellect. You you gird yourself when you're going to do hard, sustained work. And that's what this is, brothers and sisters. This is hard, sustained work. Remembering. Remember, it's your mind. It's your intellect. Remembering over and over again. Jesus will fix this when he returns. There's no guarantee he'll fix it now. But I am going to obey regardless of what happens. Reminding yourself over and over again, God has given me what I need to obey. My obedience is rooted in what God has already done in the past. Just like water flows downhill, I am going to obey because that is what he has called me to. I'm going to pray for God's spirit to be at work in us in what is hard, sustained work. So pray with me. Ah, Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you did all this first. Thank you that you're not like me. You're not like our world that says, do this and I will reward you with these good things. That you give us the reward first. And then you say, now go and do these things. You're taking quite a risk, Lord. But you always take the risks. You always take the risks first. You never ask us to risk for you. You risk for us, and then we respond. Thank you. We're so, so grateful, Lord. We're so grateful that that you are not a God like other gods. You're not a God that says, do this and then. You are a God who says, I have done this. Now you. 
Lord, help us to remember this is hard. And Peter knew that. We know that. This is hard to remember that you have already given us what we need to obey. That that what you have done for us already, you have already equipped us. You have already made us holy so we can be holy. You have already freed us so we can obey. You've already purified us. You've already done all these things for us. Oh, Lord, you you know how fickle we are. You know how short-sighted we are. Please, Holy Spirit, help us, remind us. As we go through this week, as we leave this place in a little while and go through our week, and we have to obey, and it's hard. We, We have to gird our mind. It's hard. Oh, Holy Spirit, please help us. Please help us to remember, to do just what Peter said, to know these things are true, to remember them, to set our hope on your return, and then to obey, to do what you call each of us to do. And Lord, uh, we pray this because we need it, and we know we need it. We can't do this without you. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.